Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. I'm Sean Borstrup. On this episode, I'm joined by Nadia Tuma-Weldon, the Global Head of Thought Leadership at McCann World Group and Executive Vice President of Truth Central, the agency's global intelligence unit. She was named to Luxury Daily's Luxury Women to Watch in the 2021 list. Nadia has nearly 10 years of thought leadership experience, leading global pieces of research on topics as varied as globalization, sustainability, affluence, privacy, and age. As global head of thought leadership, Nadia guides the organization in producing elevated insights that both unearths hidden truths across global culture and leads to greater business impact. In 2019, Nadia founded the company's first global luxury practice, a group of global experts who regularly produce proprietary IP around the forces shaping the future of the space. Nadia, welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Thank you for having me, Sean. I am delighted to be here. I'm very excited to have this chat with you. Firstly, just tell us a bit about you and what it is you do, because your job title is slightly unusual. I do have a couple of different hats that I, uh, that I wear at McCann. So firstly, I'm EVP of Truth Central, um, which is McCann World Group's global intelligence unit. Uh, we're, we're a little bit of a unicorn uh, in the industry, I would say. There aren't a lot of groups like, like us in marketing. Uh, so we, we create original proprietary research about culture. So lots of market research companies um, you know, they'll say that they like study, quote, consumers and it's, quote, global and they, you know, they look at a category. But we we really take a different tack where um, when we look at data, we, we really think about the fact that all of this data represents real human beings with a, a real story to tell. So we we do all of our own quantitative and qualitative research in usually over 30 markets around the world. And we really try to understand the macrocultural human experience. Um, so we've studied everything from wellness to affluence, to shopping, to sustainability, to beauty, to privacy and globalization. Um, and it's always comes from the point of view of the human being and not the industry or a place of innovation or tech or economics. Um, it's always about the people. So it's, it's a lot, a lot of fun. So that's one part of my job. The other part is global head of thought leadership uh, at World Group. Um, and that really just means that I think about um, sort of how the organization approaches the development of our thought leadership and sort of how we show up in the world and how are we bringing this to clients and how are we using it to fuel growth. Um, I think what is so novel about the way that we do things, and I'm sure you've run across this in your work, Sean, is that you know clients if you're working for instance in the automobile industry you believe that everyone wakes up and sort of thinks about cars <laughs> you know like they live in a world of cars and what we try to do is we really come in and say no people they live in a world and when they wake up they're thinking about lots of different things that shape the way that they behave and the way that they form attitudes and ultimately how they form a relationship with the brand. And so we try to really crack that open and really understand that holistic experience. And then we can say to a brand, this is how you fit in within that context. And this is how you can be meaningful within that context. So um, so I think a lot about those systems and the way that we use that thinking um, in lots of different ways. And then lastly, um, which I know I'm, I'm like a third, a third, a third, but um, I founded and co-lead the company's first global luxury practice. And that is a group of luxury obsessives from all over the world whose aim it is to reframe and recast luxury for a modern era. So we create original thinking about luxury and affluence and um, the way in which I've sort of built that over the last 10 years is through um, using our data and understanding the affluent population through our global data, but also um, through methodologies like something called the Tastemakers Council, which is um, an initiative I started about eight years ago where we bring together visionaries, pioneers, thought leaders in the world of luxury and affluence, and we bring them together over dinner and we talk about the forces that are shaping um, the next era of luxury. And that becomes the basis of a lot of our IP. So we've actually just published a new one with lots of really juicy and interesting provocations about the future of luxury, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot more here. But 
Hopefully that's not too long-winded, but those are all of the different hats that I wear. That's quite a lot of hats. Yes. No, but, but well, I mean, the first, I suppose my first response to that is it all seems to really connect together. Yeah, it does. Because I think ultimately, um, you know, w when it comes to luxury, the, the, um, the obsession that I've built over it over many, many, many years. And, and the, the obsession is not about, you know, the bling and the logos and all of these things. It truly is what at its core signifies luxury. You know, what is at the nucleus of this, this thing that we talk about that's sort of become a big flabby word that doesn't maybe mean one thing to one person. Um, but I think what's so fascinating about it and how it converges to broader cultural research is that ultimately what's happening in luxury is going to influence what's happening in broader aspiration and broader sort of ideals about what it means to live well and to elevate the business of everyday life, which ultimately is what every brand is trying to do. Even at a very basic level, every brand is you know, wanting to command a premium price. And so you can look to luxury and you can look to almost the distillation of what's happening within that culture. And it's very easy to actually translate it to lots of different categories. And, and it's funny because I will actually bring the luxury work to very surprising brands that you might not think would be interested in this type of work. But I think all brands are trying to understand how to premiumize how to be more of an experience, how to create something that's delightful and enjoyable and well-crafted. So it does actually um, bleed into many of the different things that I do. I wonder how luxury brands really think about what it is they do in terms of their product. I understand what they do in terms of marketing and the narrative um, and their comms, but just in terms of product, I, I often wonder whether or not the product is central to what they do. Yes, that is very interesting. So, gosh, that's, there's a lot to unpick there as well. Um, you know, luxury traditionally, and again, I think, well, let me take a step back. Let's talk about luxury more broadly, because I think as my group and we've been studying this culture, I would say, you know, I think a long time ago, luxury was seen as quite um, slow to change and evolve. Uh, remember when all the brands wouldn't even have e-commerce sites, they were like, no way, we're not selling anything online. And now they're all in the metaverse and, you know, they're, they're kind of becoming a lot more bullish around uh, evolving. And there's lots of reasons why that's the case. Um, but I think for a very long time, and this is a broad statement, but I think generally what we're seeing is that for a very long time, luxury brands, the really big ones, sort of set the tone for what luxury meant for society, right? So they would kind of have their marketing and their products and their dreams and their the way that they would sort of weave these beautiful stories. And that is what people would sort of aspire to. And I think what we've seen through a variety of forces, which we can talk about, is that now today, people are creating and deciding what luxury looks like to that to themselves and it's going to look very different depending on who you are and where you live so you know you could be someone who's very very traditional um ultra high net worth very exclusive able to stay at the best hotels or rent villas or get bespoke things made for them and and that's sort of what luxury looks like to them but you could also be and we, we can also have a juicy discussion around Gen Z, uh, you can also be younger and luxury looks very different for you. It maybe is more playful or maybe it's more um, accessible, you know, this idea of accessible luxury, which I think is an interesting space. Um, and maybe it's a little bit more experimental, but that that's what it looks like. So I think luxury brands, because of these shifts, have needed to diversify in that way where, you know, there, there are some that aren't participating at all which I think is really interesting. So for instance, last week, um, not to sound like a jerk, but last week I was in Paris and when I'm in Paris, it's like a playpen and you're just kind of visiting things. And I went to um, Charvet, which is this like incredibly storied heritage shirt maker in Paris. And they don't have an e-commerce site. They don't, their Instagram is kind of like non-existent. They even, when you're paying, they 
they have like a ledger that they write in. Um, they don't do anything crazy unless, I mean, you can pay for a bespoke thing, right? So they're, they're sort of on one end where it's kind of all product, right? They just, that's what they do. They've outfitted kings and queens and Coco Chanel and everything. And they're very analog and they're sort of not interested in participating in, in that world. And then you go all the way to Louis Vuitton where, you know, you had Yaya Kusama, like this five-story um model of her, you know, in the middle of Paris and they've out, you know, outfitted their store and it's this crazy experiential playground and it's digital and it's people are waiting in line and it's all over the place and and it's activated in a different way. So, I think it's a roundabout way I think of answering your question to say, you know, a brand is now sort of they have to understand what kind of ecosystem and what kind of culture they want to create around their customer. Um, because ultimately people have so many choices and they have so much information at their disposal that, um, you know, they can kind of flip to, to one to the other. And it's really about how are you choosing to speak to the diversity of customers that you want to attract? So the problem I have with that model is that how does one reconcile those ideas and come to the point where all of it is luxury? So... I get the shirt maker, I get the analog. What I don't get is the Vuitton. Mm. I understand what they do. I appreciate what they do. I think, you know, it's, you know, it's quite amazing. But the question I always ask myself is what they do luxury. I get the shirt maker, absolutely. And I get that Louis Vuitton have heritage and they do have savoir faire. But I suppose the question I always ask myself is when you've grown to the size of the LVMH group, for example, how does one maintain this notion of luxury, which is really about specialness? It's about, you know, the love and the skill that you talk about. Um, and I, I just struggle with that a bit because, you know, craftsmanship is so critical where we are trying to maintain this notion of luxury and specialness, which doesn't exist in mass production in that same, you know, in the same way. It's tricky because if you look at the ecosystem of the very well-known brands, there's obviously the elephant in the room, which is when you become a Louis Vuitton and you become part of an LVMH or a caring or, you know, you know, talk yeah, about sort of whoever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You at that stage are beholden to shareholders, right? You have to grow. Otherwise, like I think the CEO goes to jail, like you are absolutely, you need to grow. A Charvet or even, you know, Chanel, which is still privately owned, although they still have their targets, um, they have a bit more flexibility and an ability to kind of keep things to, to themselves and, and, and maybe not follow so much of, of the crowd. I think what has been really, so something I've been thinking about a lot has been this idea that actually for a very long time, luxury, another big shift, um, was sort of for older people. Like it wasn't a thing that was so mass consumed across all demographics, particularly young people. I mean, this, this idea of Gen Z, um, which I have certain opinions about, which we can certainly talk about. Um, I do understand that millennials and Gen Z are going to make up the bulk of luxury shoppers in the next few years. Now, granted, as an older millennial, we're also creeping towards middle age. And so we are having more of a disposable income and all of these different things. However, there is this notion that a lot of these companies need to go where the growth is. And so they need to, um, they need to create those relationships with the younger customer as quickly as possible as they sort of mature and they start to think about where they want to spend their money. Um, and something that I've been thinking a lot about, which is a really interesting cultural force is this idea of being wealthy and feeling wealthy. And I think a lot of these brands understand that they're, that in order to speak to a younger customer, there's this idea that they can make them feel wealthy without actually being wealthy. It's definitely a dichotomy between who is engaging with a brand in, in which way. So I would suspect that if you are someone who is 
older, moneyed, uh, you, you know, you're not really engaging with the collaboration that Louis Vuitton is doing with like some artist, probably, right? You're, you're having your bespoke thing made under the radar. You're probably sending someone to do it. You're understanding savoir-faire. You understand when you go to the second floor at Charvet and they have the millions of volts of fabric, what that means and, and why that's important. Whereas if you're younger, um, you just want the thing, right? And you just want the lipstick or you just want the thing, the keychain, right? Um, and um, that customer will eventually, hope maybe, grow up, become a CEO, become an entrepreneur, become get an inheritance, whatever it may be, um, and be able to engage in that way. Now, the trick is how do you do that without diluting the brand? And I think that's, that's the age-old question. Um, and I think that's where you go into dream creation, right? And, cre and creating that. So a brand that I think does that really, really, really well is actually Chanel. Because as more and more people are able to say, like, afford the lip gloss, right? Or they, you know, they go into the store and they're able to buy like a, a little thing. They have to continually think about how to service the people who are actually wealthy, not just the people who want to feel wealthy. Um, sort of a side note, there was a really funny trend during lockdown of young women buying um, cotton pads from Chanel. They were like $18 cotton pads. Um, because when you get the box delivered to your house, it's in like a Chanel box. <laughs> and you can, you can sort of have a little bit of a feeling as you put your toner on that you were sort of indulging a bit, you know, in the Chanel ecosystem, right? And I think that is actually really important for, for the first step in, into a brand. Um, and of course they were perpetually sold out because these young women just really wanted to get these fancy cotton pads delivered to their house during lockdown, which I think is funny. I'm going to do that now. You should do. Um, <laughs> but um, I think what they do so well is, you know, I'm sure you've heard that they're already opening stores that are invitation only, right? So the exclusivity portion of a lot of these brands is actually becoming much more intense. Right, so Chanel is opening stores that are invite only. It's only for, I think, the top 1% of their customers that get to go. Brunello Cuccinelli's done the same thing. Gucci's doing the same thing. Um, they're all doing this, right? Because they understand that there is a rarefied customer that wants to shop privately, that doesn't want to be with a lot of other people, um, that wants that sort of ultra, ultra personalized service. Um, so they have to maintain that little pocket. But then a lot of the things that they do like they have the um, the rendezvous littéraire with that the princess from Monaco, right? So she does these videos where they talk about literature, and it's on YouTube, and it's on their Instagram, and you can you can almost participate a bit in the philosophy of that house, even if you're like a girl, you know, an eighteen year old in Shanghai, you know, you can have access to that, and I think that's really really important actually, is to let let them in just enough. Um, but, you know, still create that rarefied offering for the real, the real people. And I think the brand, um, you know, I would push back a little bit on when does it stop being luxury? Because I think the brand um, really does try to maintain that mythology and that aspiration in broader culture. So I'm reading right now um, the new Karl Lagerfeld biography um, called Paradise Now. You know the house is is they want that they want people to be reading these books they want to continue to create that mythology um you know even Karl lagerfeld uh the book opens reminding us of the fact that he was the first person first company to do a collaboration with h m and it was wildly successful and it was wildly successful in bringing that brand into the consciousness of a new generation but it was done i think with such intention because carl was such a genius um that the effect was that it just strengthened the brand versus diluting it. Um, I don't know exactly how you, you know, the ins and outs of how you would do that, but essentially the story is that he was in the elevator at, at the office and a very stylish young woman came in wearing Chanel flats and a tweed jacket with jeans and a t-shirt. And he complimented her and he said, Oh, I, lo I love your look. And she said, Oh, thank you. You know, my shoes are Chanel, but my, my jacket's just H and M because I can't afford it. And he saw that and he was like, right, I'm calling H and M because this is the future. This is where the young people are going. There is a way to participate in broader culture, I think, and, and, and be part of modernity. You don't have to be Charvet with like your little ledger. Um, although that's quite magical and wonderful. Um, 
But you also at the same time need to make sure that as the rich get richer, which they are, and we know that, um, you still need to create that space for them to feel like this is truly a brand for me. This is truly a brand that caters to my every need and desire. Um, and I don't have to sort of participate with the sort of flash and the sizzle that's going on um, for the rest of the culture. My thoughts then, oh, that's all great, you know, because it, it, it all works. But then the question I still ask is how all of that is luxury. And, you know, I get that with their kind of these levels and, you know, you've got kind of the aspirational client, you've got the Gen Zs, the millennials, you've got all of these consuming groups around the world who are, who are aspiring to own, oh, I don't know, the Kelly bag or a Chanel suit or a Vuitton trunk or whatever it might be. But then if you rewind the clock um, to probably before you were born um, to 1979, when Gloria Vanderbilt, I think it's 1979, when Gloria Vanderbilt launched her jeans, we had designer everything until probably the 90s. And then the notion of luxury started to supersede the idea of designer. So where we had all of these people, Chanel, Hermes, Vuitton, Giorgio Armani, they were all designers and you were buying fashion. There was a point in time where all of that changed and it all became luxury. Also thinking about, and this, you know, this is sometimes a contentious issue, thinking about, you know, manufacturing methods, um, specifically with some other companies who, you know, their manufacturing is not um, um, something to be desired, shall we say. And then that becomes problematic because, you know, you're talking about the handmade shirt, the person in the lift with the jacket, um, and talking about this appreciation for a lipstick or a cotton pad, all of those things are aspirational things, which is great. You know, we want people to aspire to, you know, whatever. All of that is really just fashion and not necessarily about, about yeah. luxury, but luxury is used to, um, to frame it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And it, it honestly drives me crazy. I mean, sometimes I, you know, just as a quick example, I'm, I'm based in New York and Sometimes I walk around and I see these buildings go up within a, a matter of three months and they're called luxury condos. And I think in what world is like this luxury? Like, I think it has become something that you just tack on to something. And, you know, now you have everything from luxury dental floss to, you know, luxury coffee. And, you know, I think it's, again, it's become one of these big flabby words. And it's something that we talk a lot about at Truth Central because, you know, if you do something like um, uh, last year, I led a study called "The Truth About Sustainability," and that's another one. Sustainability. What does that even mean anymore? We need to under we need to unpick it. And and oftentimes, what happens when a word is overused like that is that it just has a massive communications problem, right? So you hear luxury, and there's kind of a lot of baggage. And in fact, at one of our tastemaker council dinners, um, a very rarefied person said, "You know, we actually need to toss out that word because it doesn't mean anything anymore." And that's where we started to have this conversation that you referenced earlier around true luxury being a combination of love and skill. And I think that, you know, to sort of cut through all the noise to say, okay, if there's too much love and it's, it's all soul and it's all sort of um, passion and there's no skill, I don't really know what that is. Maybe that's some kind of art or that's some kind of, uh, you know, who knows. But if it's all skill and it's all technicalities and you, you remove that love and you don't actually have a, uh, an ability to connect with the human and the sort of like beating heart and creativity of what's going on, then it's like, you know, it's, it's a direct consumer brand that's built by an engineer. So I do think the, the love and skill piece is where you get that, that, harmo that harmonious thing. And I think that is probably where your distaste is coming from, because I think some of the initiatives that some of these brands do feel a little bit like, oh, it was like some algorithm told you to do that. Or some like consultant came in and said, that's where the growth sector is. And so you're just doubling down on that. And that does feel icky because these brands have such a heritage and have such a, you know, heroic myth and have so many of these different things that, um, that make them like magical brands, like magical houses with these histories. Um, the thing that, that I would say, and going back to my earlier point about how luxury is now 
something that people define for themselves. And it's not necessarily that the brands are dictating what that means anymore. Um, we did a really um, interesting analysis in our work um, where, you know, I think for better or for worse, marketing and market research can sometimes fall into some pretty broad tropes. So, you know, they'll say things like, we need to understand the 18 to 24 year old demographic. Well, is everyone between the ages of 18 and 24 the same? No, we know that's not true. Um, or they'll say, you know, we need to understand the ultra high net worth. Well, we also know that the ultra high net worth are not just one person. I, I have a slide that I show sometimes that shows like, imagine someone who is English, ultra high net worth, a boomer, and a male, a man. <laughs> You know, like imagine who that is. Well, it could be Ozzy Osbourne or it could be King Charles, right? So we know that like these sorts of demographics are not a way to actually define individuals. And so we, we've done a factor analysis where we take people who are in the affluent segment and we actually crack them into tribes and into clubs. And I think that's where you start to get a little bit more nuance because I have a very specific view of what luxury is. You clearly have a very specific view of what luxury is, but that's our own view that we've built because we have very specific relationships to uh, ambition, to materialism, to uh, experiences, to how we grew up, to our relationship with money and all of these different things that make people make this, the decisions that they make. And so what we found when we cracked open uh, the entire affluent population of the globe, we found that there are actually four mindsets, four motivators, four aspirations. And the thing is, is that if you're a luxury brand and you think about that entire ecosystem of luxury, you can understand which of these clubs or these tribes are the ones that are gonna resonate most with you. So really, really briefly, just because it's a bit of fun to think about who these people are, and I think we all know them, um, we have one group that is called the Culture Club, which I kind of feel is, is maybe where you sit. But these are individuals who, it's not about the external flash. It's all about understanding the world and being well-read and understanding art and being very low-key and not having logos. And, you know, they might wear the row and they might stay at that little, like, cute little luxury inn that's unbranded in Sweden. And, you know, they, they go, they're interested in film and thought and books. And, um, and it's very understated. It's very much about who, how you live rather than what you own. There's another group that's called the Country Club. We've called them the Country Club, which is a little bit more of your old money, generational wealth, very classic, very much about protecting legacy, very much about charity, very much about not standing out, and very much about privacy and protection of, of what you already have. Um, and those, to me, those two are really like probably more of the, the luxury that you think is right and you think should be maintained and protected. But then there are these two other groups which are very interesting and they tend to be a bit younger. One is called the Alpha Club, or we've called them the Alpha Club, and they tend to be in more developing countries. So they're in China and the Middle East and Mexico, and they're incredibly bullish and they're incredibly ambitious and they're incredibly materialistic and they love brands and they love brands because brands are innovative and creative and help them express themselves better and, and reach their goals and they, they love it. And when you talk to luxury brands, they're like, oh my God, the Alpha Club, we need to be around the Alpha Club because they just see that as such a growth target. Um, and then the last one, which was actually the biggest proportion globally, it's about a third of the global affluent population is called the Fight Club. And they're sort of everything the Alpha Club is, except that they're incredibly insecure about their position in life. So these are the types of people who, no matter how much money they make, they always think they're on the brink of losing it. And it's all about the external. It's all about showing what they have and making sure that other people know what they have and being seen at the places where people are seen. And, and that is how they get their validation. And so if you think about where the wealth is in the world, you get this constellation of different types of people. And so, you know, a Charvet is like, I'm going for the country club, but maybe a Louis Vuitton is like, you know what? The Alpha Club, that's where we need to be going because that's where we see the heat. So I know it doesn't particularly answer the question, but I do think that it's understanding that luxury customers are not all one thing and they don't all love one thing. And, and sometimes they evolve through life. So maybe you're born an alpha and you mature into a culture. Still at the core of it, luxury is not about being everything to everyone. 
I don't think. Although everyone can have and perceive luxury in their own way, as you've described. You know, you can have your teenager wanting to buy the, a pair of Balenciaga sneakers and they'll buy those sneakers because they've seen them somewhere or seen them on some somebody. The appreciation is not for the sneaker, as for Balenciaga. And I think, you know, where you've got this idea of old money, new money, um, show and tell or not show or tell. And then you would refer to, you know, this idea that um, Chanel and other uh, other big brands are opening these private salons around the world for their 1%. And I suppose the thing that being the cynic I am when it comes to all things luxury is that, of course, they're going to do that because they've saturated the market with so much product that there's a band of customer who are possibly those 1%, maybe more, who, who are demanding a return to what Chanel once stood for, which was what Chauvet now stand for, because Chanel was very much that. So I, and this is why these questions keep, I suppose, are, are interesting and there won't ever be an answer to, um, but they need to be explored because I suppose from my point of view, it's what the luxury brands have the potential to do is undermine this notion of craftsmanship on which luxury is founded. You know, luxury is not this term or perhaps shouldn't be a term that's banded about for commercial gain. In order to maintain some sort of true notion of what luxury might be, you know, it can't be applied to everything in equal measure, although it, you know, that seems to be what's happening. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's the age old question and I mean, ultimately, it's interesting because I think a lot of what you're saying is is you're still sort of swimming in the ocean of luxury being like the things. Oh, I'm or 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 the sort of external trappings, right? I'm flying first class with my Louis Vuitton luggage. Is that really luxury? You know, I think ultimately, if we're if we're going to be really honest with ourselves, yeah, I think I think real luxury is. You know, they talk a lot about, um, uh, I don't know who they are, but in, in the culture, there's a lot of talk about, well, uh, you know, it, it goes back to this idea of feeling wealthy and being wealthy, right? Real, real wealth, real appreciation of things is what you don't see, right? It's actually having freedom and money in the bank and the ability to live your life as you choose. Like, if you really want to talk about luxury, like what we're talking about is the commercialization of luxury and the things that you acquire and the things that say something about yourself to the to the outside world. And so I think to, you know, and this is not a new idea, but you could be sitting at a pub next to someone in like the most unassuming outfit and they could be a billionaire, or you could be at the Four Seasons, you know, uh, in Lake Como and the person that you're sitting next to has spent their entire life savings to be there. So you know, it's, it's, there's, there's a nuance there, which is like our, our luxury brands, you know, creating a, a prison for people of their own making where they're trying to access this life. But really the thing they should be thinking about is, you know, how do I, how do I live a life of, you know, joy and abundance that has nothing to do with purchasing things or, you know, showing that I can fly first class. So, I mean, that's a much more philosophical conversation, but what, what these brands are doing and what I think is sort of giving you a little bit of that ick factor is that they are selling that dream and they are selling that world, which is nothing new. I mean, they've been doing it for, for generations. It's just that they've now needed to grow so much that they have to find more. It's either, you know, grow your current base or bring in more people. And they're doing probably both. Um, and the way that they're bringing in more people is they're, they're creating this illusion that if you purchase these things, you are living a life of luxury. Whereas, you know, give me like, a, you know, freedom and a, a, a well padded bank account over a bag any day, you know? No, and I, I, you know, I absolutely agree. You ask 100 people how they define luxury, you're going to get 100 different answers. I mean, if I think about some of the most exquisite experiences I've had, um, and I'm not saying that I'm like an ultra luxury, you know, consumer, but they've been at, say, just an absolutely sublime hotel, or it's 
you know, and, and this might sound materialistic and I, th I think you can be materialistic and you can be a serious person at the same time, but there have been certain shopping experiences I've had that are like incredibly memorable because they were so cared for. And, and it, the thing that I say often is, and I think actually this is very nerdy, but it's a Dostoevsky quote is beauty will save the world. And I think the world needs more beauty because when there is beauty and there is craft and there is things that are well-made, um, you do care for your things differently and you do interact with other people differently and you create much more of a, be a beautiful world. And I, and I actually think that that, um, that to the sustainability point, right? It's like, if you really have a beautiful thing that you have acquired and you have paid money for and you had an amazing experience around every time you use that thing, it is going to be giving your life an elevation, a bump. You will never toss it in the trash. You will never sell it on a secondhand market. You will treasure that thing. And that is the most sustainable thing. You have, you know, the buy something and use it for the rest of your life, right? Don't just buy 15 things because they're on sale. When I think about luxury, it is the savoir faire. It is people who represent a brand that really care about how the customer feels and walks out of the store or out of the hotel or out of the restaurant feeling. You know, I had a, um, I had a, a, a sort of an aha moment, um, and this is so small, but truly, it's like that—that's luxury. Um, there's a restaurant in New York um, called Morea, which is just an absolutely wonderful restaurant in Columbus Circuit Circle. And a few years ago, my husband and I had dinner there and we were waiting for our table. And he said, oh, look, that's nice. And I sort of looked at the, um, the entrance and someone had done, I don't know if they do this in the UK, but they had like a doggy bag <laughs> where they had asked for part of their food to be wrapped up and, and kept for them. That bag was being kept at the entrance. It wasn't given to the person at their table because when you stand up and you're trying to get your coat on and you're trying to, you know, navigate all of your things, you don't want to have a bag that's a you know big paper bag that you're trying to knock, you know, on the backs of the heads of the other diners as you're trying to leave. They, it was just that that thought that was like we keep it at the entrance so that these people can elegantly swan out of this wonderful meal without looking awkward, and then we'll hand them their meal when they leave. I know that seems really small, but to me, it was such a moment of that's luxury. It's not just, oh, it's good enough. Oh, who cares? Oh, here's just another pair of sunglasses that we made in the same factory as every other pair of sunglasses. It's those moments. And it's those moments when you're in a store and you're buying something and the people actually care when they're helping you or they actually you know, want to make sure that your experience at the hotel is just perfect. So that's sort of how, how I, I see it. That's what makes these conversations interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, like you said earlier, you ask 100 people, um, 100 people might have a different opinion on, on what luxury might be. It's important to have these conversations because, I mean, what you've picked up on, I think, is really interesting around the restaurant is that, you know, all around, you know, buying a product and having that experience of the purchase, and I think on one level, that's it's amazing because you do remember going into a store and, um, you know, um, being not well treated as you would being poorly treated. Do the companies treat their staff in the same way that they expect their staff to treat the customer? Because then there's a different kind of luxury in that experience because, you know, it's twofold, isn't it? It's about the customer, but it's also about the member of staff that is the experience is, is your staff, you know? And I think that's where you get a really interesting view of what, of how strong a luxury brand is. You know, I, I um, again, I'll, I'll go back to Chanel, which um, I think is so interesting because they, if you see some of the documentaries and things and they go to the atelier and they speak with the seamstresses, I mean, they still speak about Mademoiselle Chanel, like almost like this phantom who's in the halls. Like they always think about what would she do? What would she think? Um, I think that's really, really interesting. And I also think um, uh, there's this, it translates all the way down. There's this really cool little space. It's kind of like a speakeasy style beauty store in New York called um, Atelier Beauté by Chanel. And I don't think it's much of a moneymaker. I think they do it just because it's 
cool and it's fun and you kind of go up the secret staircase and the store is set up like a bathroom so you can actually use all the products um, as if you were in your own bathroom and then there's this very cool sort of like private bar in the back where you choose perfumes and it's very cool but the thing that's really lovely about it is that their people don't work on commission um, they literally work straight from the passion of the products and the experience and so anyone can walk in you can be a kid and you'll be treated with you know with taste and respect or you could be you know someone um who's a, a very high roller within that company um but what i love about it is that all the staff is there to treat you like an expert with taste they're not there to sell you anything and i think that is exactly when you get that wonderful feeling um and you start to feel like you understand what that brand stands for and what it's about. And you, again, you can be an 18 year old and walk into that beauty store and get treated really, really well because you don't know if that girl's gonna grow up and be someone who wants to then go down the street and buy her first piece of couture. Um, so That's I think- pretty woman. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> depends. <laughs> oh, no, not quite. No, not I just realised what I just said. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> cut, cut. No, no. <laughs> um, no, but you see, I think that's interesting in itself. That's where these levels come in because you don't always get that, um, you know, that experience um, all the time. It's not consistent. When I think of luxury, I think of innovation because I think it's, you know, it's about new skills and different ways of using materials and different ways of even selling things or packing things. And I was wondering, do you think of yourself within the world that you work as, um, as an innovator? Do you think of yourself as an innovator in the way you, you know, how you work within True Central or within the work you do with luxury? Because you are, are you a tastemaker as well as an innovator? I, I feel like I couldn't possibly begin to answer that question because um, I... Because you have influence, surely. Yeah, I, I think that um, the thing that I ambition to do within this space is, I think it's very similar to what you're doing, which is constantly interrogating it and, and constantly looking at how it's changing and evolving and, and almost ideally being a couple of steps ahead, you know, to see where where things are going. I think um, within the space of sort of understanding the culture of luxury, I mean, there's so many amazing thinkers out there. I mean, speaking of innovation, you know, there's there's amazing writers that I, I follow on, on platforms like Substack. There are incredible YouTubers, there are incredible TikTokers who, you know, are, are using these platforms in incredible ways to comment on what's happening in, in the industry. Um, so I think, um, you know, maybe 10 years ago when I was really starting to actually more 12 or 13 years ago when I um, when I was working in consulting and hated my job and I would um, I had a funny little blog spot that I would write in at night about luxury um, because it was an outlet for me to just think about things I loved. Um, you know, that that time fast forward to now and there's there's just so many incredible voices and thinkers out there who um, I think probably are shaping the way luxury is going because we all have access to it. You know, at the time before you didn't have a lot, you know, you read Dana Thomas's books and maybe looked at style.com um, and you had your funny little notebook that you kept with you um, and you, you thought about these things. But I think um, in terms of what we do at True Central, it's a very specific niche. Um, you know, we, we do stand on the, on the shoulders of, giant amounts of proprietary data, which I think um, is is really emboldening for the thinking that we do, because we can say, look, we're really creative about how we're thinking about this space, but oh, and by the way, there's evidence. Like we actually have evidence. It's not just my opinion, you know, which um, is, is a lot of what's out there in terms of um, the commentary on luxury. So I love that we're, our foundation is a strong one on global data and that we can say, well, actually in China, it's like this, and this is why, and this is the data, and this is what's going on in France. And, you know, yes, we understand that market and that culture, but actually we can support it with real world, real world evidence, which I think is what differentiates us with our clients because they can trust that we're not just opinionated, right? We're experts with data. Um, 
very long-winded answer to your question, but I think it's a very exciting time to be in, in this space because not only is, um, is there so much conversation around it, but I find, um, you know, I found a lot of it hilarious and it's TikTok and these, this young generation is so creative in terms of how they comment on it. Um, so there's just so much information to swim in and sort of piece together and look for patterns. What we are able to do is a lot more of the things that I was speaking about earlier, like segmentations, right? Or diving deep into a specific culture um, or speaking with experts who can tell me that, you know, it's not just about America and American luxury. It's like go to Florida and you have about four different countries there and four different ways that you can understand luxury within that one state. So, um, so it's less about what's the material, what's the product. It's really about that behavioral attitudinal formation and to sort of ultimately how that translates into how you build a relationship with a brand. Might sound like a super question, but I mean, are, is all your data um, telling you that there's a, a, um, a seismic shift in the appreciation of, of product based on origin? Or is that, you know, based on origin and also based on materials and origin? Place of origin used to be really important, made in Italy, made in England. Yeah, you know, we do an analysis, which is a really, really fun one. We call it the lines of influence analysis. So we'll ask people in different countries, um, you know, when it comes to, and we'll do different categories like beauty, for instance, or um, even things like automobile or, or technology. And we'll say, you know, what's the, what's the culture that most influences the way that you, um, that you, that represent a high quality version of, of this type of product. And we create these sort of weather maps around culture. And so you might look at uh, Korea and the beauty category, and you could start to see these weather patterns where you see you know, a strong current coming from France, but also very strong currents coming from China and Japan. Or you, know, you look at uh, you know, America and you, and you see that actually, it's no surprise, but Americans are like, America influences me because you know, we're, we're quite provincial over here. So there, there are these ways of understanding legacy and lineage and country of origin and what the strength is, um, depending on, who, again, who you are and where you live. And you start to actually see that it's complicated and it's nuanced and it kind of can come from anywhere and go anywhere. And I think the weather pattern shifts that we've seen over time where a lot of it was coming from America and France and to some extent the UK is now shifting more to the East or more to the South. And you know you start to see how those things change over time, which I think is incredibly fascinating. I'm interested in this idea of craftsmanship. And I was wondering um, how you would define craftsmanship and if you think that it's you know, linked to, to luxury? Um, yeah, I, I think true craftsmanship uh, is, um, is required for real luxury. And again, I'm, I'm not just speaking about how you make the bag. I'm actually speaking much, much more broadly. You know, I think about, um, you know, the culture, for instance, in Japan, where you don't even get to, as a, let's say you're being trained to cut hair, you're not even allowed to pick up the scissors until you've watched for five years or something. You know, you can't look at the ramen until you've made whatever the noodles in the back for 10 years or whatever it is, you know? And I think that's, that's incredibly important. Um, but I think, um, I think it's more philosophical than that. Um, I, I sort of have this obsession with this man uh, named, his name's Ian Rogers. I don't really know where he is now, but at a certain point he was the, um, chief digital officer at LVMH, I want to say. And I remember he said something about digital and he said, you know, everything in luxury needs to be made with craft and software fair, even if it's an app. Um, and I think even today you would say, even if you're doing an activation in the metaverse, you should put as much care and savoir faire and um, attention to detail into an app on your phone as you do to the creation of a beautiful handmade handbag. Um, and that I think extends to service, you know, and understanding how to treat your customer to how you um, are, are at a hotel and know when to interact and when to be invisible um, and sort of when to delight. Cause I actually don't think affluent people like being surprised. I think they like to be delighted. Um, so, so yes, I mean, I think the simple answer is that. And I think when, 
that's where you get you get into the problems that you were talking about, which is everything's a luxury. Well, if it was kind of made on a manufacturing line in a factory with every other sunglass or chocolate or whatever it is, um, I don't think it gets to be called luxury because you don't you don't have that that craftsmanship. Yeah, but but then the counter argument for that would be if that pair of sunglasses made on the line because I mean you know better than anybody you know there's probably one company in the world that makes everybody's sunglasses Luxottica um, and are they all you know they are made on a production line and are they luxury well they are luxury partly because of the price because the price has come to define what luxury might be but also because of the attribution you know it's how they're attributed to the brand that's put their label on them I mean I don't want to put you on the spot. No, I'm not entirely sure. I agree that price equals luxury. Um, No, I don't either necessarily. But I think a lot of people do. A lot of people do. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know. um, Is this going to be a very careful editing job of this podcast? No, no, not at all. I mean, you're speaking (laughs) to someone who thinks luxury is like having the perfect raspberry at the, you know, peak of the season, (laughs) you know, from from a farm. What I'd like to ask you is, what is your luxury? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, I think I've alluded to it before. I, I really do think, to me, freedom is wealth. And luxury to me is to be able to have choices and to live your life the way you want to live and to do the type of work you want to do and live where you want to live. And I think... Um, so many times luxury is conflated with what you see. And I, I really do believe it's luxury is what you don't see. And it's to be able to have a free, fulfilling and comfortable life. Um, I, I have a friend of mine who works in finance who, who told me a really funny sort of metaphor where he was saying, oh, if you're really junior at an organization, you spend all of your life um, in Excel, uh, the program, like the, you know, the numbers program. And then the next, um, the next level, like you spend all your time in PowerPoint. And he says, then the next level, um, you're just in email all the time. And he said, finally, when you're at the top, you're just on your phone texting and you're wherever you want to be. <laughs> and I thought that's exactly right. You know, like really this idea of I'm going to buy into luxury to me is just not, that's not my, my version of it. My version of it is to be able to live your life on your terms. Nadia Tumo Weldon. This has been a journey and luxury is all about journeys. So thank you very much for joining me on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. I'm so happy to have joined you and I can't wait to keep chatting about this in the future. Thank you, Nadia. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our sponsors, Interlet Books. And don't forget, you can catch up on all previous episodes of the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast on your favorite listening platform.